Welcome to the PCTR Podcast. I'm Robbie Itterberg, Senior Pastor. I want to thank you for listening today. We hope that you hear from God and that this podcast encourages you in your faith journey. You can connect with us on social at facebook.com slash PCTRNJ or our Instagram handle, PCTRNJ. Or you can find more information or resources at PCTR.org. Have a great day. Peace. Well, as we jump into our message this evening, I've got a question, and you can see the question hopefully right here on the screen for you. I want to know which of the following phrases is in the Bible, all right? So which of the following phrases is in the Bible? All right, let's go. God never gives you more than you can handle. When God closes a door, he opens a window. Money is the root of all evil. God helps those who help themselves. Heaven gained another angel. Which of these phrases is in the Bible? You are a very quick group. It's true. There are, none of these phrases are actually in the Bible. You may have thought that money is the root of all evil is in the Bible because there's something very close to that. 1 Timothy 6.10 actually says that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And so it's similar, but it's really not the same. Now, these are really well-known phrases, though. I hear them all the time. You probably hear them. You may have even said them. And, but more than just phrases that we hear, these are phrases that are deeply believed. And they're not only not in the Bible, some of them are just flat wrong. And yet, we've learned them, and many of us live our lives as if these are true. We build our lives on them. So what do we do? Because this list could be a lot longer than this. That's what we're going to jump into this evening in the next sermon in our sermon series that we've been calling What Matters in the End. This is a sermon series we've been walking through the second letter of Peter. It was a letter likely written from a Roman prison as Peter is very aware that he is going to die soon. And so he's chosen carefully what to write about. And this letter reflects what he thinks matters most in the end. We started this series and letter with a reminder of the incredible, powerful gifts of faith and grace and peace that are ours in abundance through Jesus Christ. In the second week, we were told that we have everything we need to live life, namely the Holy Spirit at work within us. Last week, we looked at how God has given us the Bible as a guide, a tool to lead our steps through life. He gave it to us through the faithful prophets and writers of Scripture throughout the years and the generations. And today, we're turning to Peter's deep concern about the presence of false teachers and false prophets that had risen up in the church in his day, and I think continues to be a concern today. And so we're gonna jump in to 2 Peter chapter two. I invite you, if you'd like, you can follow along on the screen, but let's do listen for God's word together. 
But there were also false prophets among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. They will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the sovereign Lord who bought them, bringing swift destruction on themselves. Many will follow their depraved conduct and will bring the way of truth into dis disrepute. In their greed, these teachers will exploit you with fabricated stories. Their condemnation has long been hanging over them, and their destruction has not been sleeping. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but sent them to hell, putting them in chains of darkness to be held for judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world when he brought the flood on its ungodly people, but protected a Noah, a preacher of righteousness, and seven others, if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah by burning them to ashes and made them ex an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly, and if he rescued Lot, a righteous man, who was distressed by the depraved conduct of the lawless, for that righteous man, living among them day after day, was tormented in his righteous soul by the lawless deeds he saw and heard. If this is so, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to hold the unrighteous for punishment on the day of judgment. This is especially true of those who follow the corrupt desire of the flesh and despised authority. Bold and arrogant, they're not afraid to heap abuse on celestial beings. Yet even angels, although they are stronger and more powerful, do not heap abuse on such beings when bringing judgment on them from the Lord. But these people blaspheme in matters they do not understand. They are like unreasoning animals, creatures of instinct, born only to be caught and destroyed. And like animals, they too will perish. Let's pray as we move into this word together. Heavenly Father, as we seek to hear from you in this moment, our desire is to hear truly from you what is true, what is right, what is good. And Lord, with humility, we ask that you would be the one leading our thoughts. You would be the one leading our minds and our meditations of our heart. Lord, take what is, what is read, what is said, what is heard, and what is acted upon and make it yours. In Jesus' name. Amen. So Peter is deeply distressed because there are false teachers who have worked their way into the church. Right? That they're one of them. They're among them. And they are claiming Jesus as their, as their identity or that they're followers of Jesus as their identity. But he's concerned because these false teachers are spreading heresies, right? These things that are untrue, these things that are leading people astray, these things that are not in line with who God has revealed himself to be, how he has acted consistently throughout history, and how he has particularly most preeminently acted through the person and the work of Jesus Christ. That's his greatest concern. In verse 1, he's saying they're denying the sovereign Lord who bought them. Now, Peter doesn't actually give us a whole lot of detail in this passage of exactly what they were teaching. And he doesn't try to refute them point for point. He raises this incredible concern, though. 
And he's assuming that what they have heard, what they have on board with them, that they'll resonate with what he's writing. That once he points it out, they'll go, hmm, you know what? I think you're right. I think that's exactly what's going on. They're denying the sovereign Lord who bought them. And this has been, the re- this, this is the core challenge to the Christian faith throughout all of history. Because Jesus is kind of a problem, right? He, he's amazing and, and kind of a problem, especially when you get serious about who he is, who he says he is, and what he's done. Because if Jesus is in fact God in the flesh, then that makes a very high claim and demand on all of us, doesn't it? I mean, if this is the one who made us, and then he comes in the flesh and he begins to teach and lead us and begin to show us what life is supposed to look like, then there's a pretty fair assumption that we should do what he says, isn't there? And that he might actually know what is the best way for us. And so that's the first problem with Jesus. But if he also then is God in the flesh, taken on a human nature as well, and he dies on a cross, now that's really confusing. Because Isn't he supposed to be triumphant? Isn't he supposed to be victorious? Isn't he supposed to be larger than life? Isn't he supposed to bring about a whole new kingdom where everything is good and right and beautiful and shiny? But that whole death on a cross thing, that's weird. It doesn't make sense. And so Paul actually reflects on this reality that the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. Right? It's a challenge for us to really wrap our head around, which is why it's a work of the Holy Spirit within us to help us grapple with these profound truths and to be able to hold on to them. Which is why if there are folks in your life, just as an aside, who are struggling to grapple and grab, or if you are struggling to grab on to the truth of the Christian faith, then the only recourse is to continue to pray. And to continue to invite the Holy Spirit to do that work and continue to then engage in open conversation, dialogue, and questions as the Holy Spirit works. But for so many over the years who have tried to grapple with who Jesus is, that that famously C.S. Lewis said it basically comes down to a couple few choices, right? That he's either a liar a lunatic, or he's the Lord, right? That, that either everything he says you can't really lean into or believe because it's just so outrageous and is a lie. But if it's not, oh man. Or he's a lunatic that he's so like deluded about who he thinks he is. He's got a savior complex, right? Hmm, where does that language come from? Because, right, that we have this like, idea that we're like the Savior. Well, how could he think he's the Savior? Right? It all goes back to that same place, that he's a lunatic. Like, how can he say he's God? How can, he, how can he make these sorts of claims? So you've got him either as a liar or a lunatic, or he's the Lord, because if, if what he says is true, then he has got a claim and a, and a calling that he can lay claim to all of our lives. <laughs> and so it's a problem, or it's hope depending on how it's 
been received. And so all throughout history, people have been trying to grapple with what to do with Jesus. And in the process, many have risen up to try to deny some aspect of who Jesus is. They try to make him, well, maybe he was actually only God. How, how, could, how could the infinite and perfect God actually have come into human flesh? No, that was like, he, he just put on like a, a costume, right? I, I was watching Men in Black last weekend, which is an old movie at this point. And, you know, the, the, the whole problem in the movie is that this bug, this alien bug comes from outer space and he comes to Earth and he's hunting down this galaxy. But in the process, he, at the very beginning... He ends up, unfortunately, killing off a man and then taking his skin as a, a suit, a costume. Right? And his wife's reflecting on this later, saying he, he was wearing his skin like an like a egger suit. You know? and, and this has been one of the attempts to, to deal with Jesus. Like, no, 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 he was, he was all only God. He just put on like a suit. He didn't actually unite himself, which means he also didn't really die. And, and so this could have been one of the heresies that was coming out of the church in that day. But if he was only God, then that means humanity still has the weight and burden of our sinfulness to deal with. That it's still ours. Well, so maybe he was human. You know, and he wasn't really God. You know, he, he, was, you know, he, he was like filled with God, and like he had the Spirit of God with him and on him and around him, but he wasn't actually God in the flesh. Right? And this, I think, in our day is a much more common way to try to dismiss Jesus. Right? This, is, this happens a lot, actually, in many Christian churches in America, where Jesus is considered a profound example of the highest heights of the human experience and human life. To see him is to see what we were made to be and how we were made to live. And so the gospel, if Jesus is this profound example, becomes then really essentially, he is an example for you to follow. The good news is if you follow him and are actively doing it the way that he does it, then you can be on the right side of things. You can be on the right team. You're one of the good guys. And because you're one of the good guys, then you're going to get through at the end of the day. God's going to accept you. Right? But because his work was exemplary, not substitutionary is what that means. His death on a cross wasn't for you or for me in any way that we actually received benefit. It was an example of profound self-sacrificial love. And if you'll follow that way, the path of love, then you too will be the enlightened ones and will be in heaven, right? This is common teaching. And it's not quite that explicit. It's not quite that blatant most of the time. But the message that keeps coming out over and over and over again is behave a certain way like Jesus did, then you'll go to heaven. Now, how, how about that one? Is that a little more clear like you've heard at some point? You know, if you do this like Jesus did, which was one of the problems with the what would Jesus do movement. Because then it really just, if we weren't careful said, okay, then if I just do what Jesus did, then I'll be fine. 
Well, the problem is I'm not Jesus, and I can't do what Jesus did, which then leaves me still holding my sin with nowhere to go if Jesus wasn't, in fact, the one that came to deal with my sin. But, But this is a way that has become very common in America because we're... We're desensitized. We're more modern. We're, you know, we understand. We're more enlightened that Jesus you know, wasn't actually God. He was just a profound, profound human, a justice warrior, one that was truly the good guy. And so we've got a couple of these ways. So some have, have tried to offer God, Jesus as like almost a, a second God. Where it's, you know, he's not really the same because what, and the way this one works is that that God of the Old Testament is angry and nasty. But Jesus is such a loving, gentle alternative. And and in the process, disconnect the father and the son, change the very nature of the understanding of who God is. Because Jesus says, the father and I are one. That's his own understanding of himself. If they're one, they're of the same character. They're of the same nature. And so what that, what that means for us is then we have to try to understand and grapple and reconcile with what we tend to see in the Old Testament compared to what we tend to see in the New Testament. And what we tend to see in the New Testament is we forget that Jesus talked about hell more than he talked about love. We don't like that. Jesus talked about judgment and condemnation and the need to repent and how life isn't working. So, but we, this teaching about Jesus has come up and bubbled up and bubbled up in our culture. Now, those are very common even within the church. And, and of course, we're dealing also with teaching that's out, come from outside the church, and some within the church have grabbed onto it. And one of the real challenges about Jesus is that he, he just goes around making these audacious claims, doesn't he? Making claims like, you know, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. He makes these exclusive claims, and really, we don't like exclusive anything. Right? We don't like being, having things be so narrow. We don't like having things be so like, focused. Like, we don't like that when it comes to you know, dinner options. Like, we get frustrated when we go to the grocery store and we're used to seeing 17 different types of milk and they're out of three. So now we're down to 14, but the one that we usually buy is gone. And so we're like angry because there's this, this exclusive milk problem. Right? We have a real problem when the options are narrowed. And then it gets really challenging for us when the options become narrowed on a cosmic and eternal level. We start to get uncomfortable. I'm not sure that that's a bad thing. I think we probably should feel a little uncomfortable. Because if if Jesus is the only way, then that means I'm not the way. (laughs) Hmm. Well, that's not so fun. I like being the way. I like having the answers. I like being able to fix my problems. I like being able to determine my destiny. I like to believe that I can achieve anything I put my mind to. But maybe I can't. 
And maybe actually I know that at a deep core level. Maybe I know that there's things that are true that I continue to turn my eyes toward. And I continue to justify behaviors in my life, knowing that they're not the best behaviors. But I just want to continue to do my thing, my way. And so many have come to see Jesus in our culture, love Jesus. Man, Jesus is amazing. Hey, look, at, look at him. He is just this profound example of love and, and isn't really all we need love because that would just fix everything. Now, I want to say that would take us a whole long way because there's enough hate going around today. We don't need more of that. There's enough self-righteous condemnation for those who don't see things the way that we see them or that they see them or that they see them, right? And there's enough arrogance that comes around the exclusive claims. I think one of our problems about the exclusive claim of Jesus is that Christians have been arrogant for too long, especially Christians that have held onto an exclusive understanding of Jesus, that he is the way. And so instead of causing that to, having that cause a, a deep breaking of our heart and a weeping over those who don't live and walk with Jesus and know him and know his love for them, instead it's hardened us and we can become, hmm, feel good about ourselves and let everybody else rot. See, the reality of the exclusive claim of Jesus, if you're a Jesus follower, it should tear us up. It's our hope, because it means that he's done for me what I can't do for myself. But it also means that he's done for you, and you, and you, and you, and for everybody else what they can't do for themselves either. And I think if our hearts broke over the exclusive nature, and if it actually changed the way that we lived, then I'm not sure there would be as much problem. There'd still be a problem. Because, frankly, I still want to be God over my life a lot of the days. And so do most people. And Jesus challenges that. But I think if we lived from that place, it would begin to soften the position of those who recoil at the exclusive claim of Jesus. Because Jesus does make that exclusive claim. You know, and, and the compassionate among us struggle with that because we start wondering, well, how could, is it fair that God would condemn people who haven't even heard of Jesus? And, and that's a good question. It's a fair question because at least it's a compassionate question and a question that's looking to others in our lives and wondering, what's that going to mean for them? And one of the problems is I was thinking about this and, and looking into it this week. I, I read, was reading an article that was dealing with this question, and one of the things the, the author said is that the question that we usually ask assumes something that's, it has a fundamental assumption that's just off base. Because what we assume is that God condemns people for not having heard and believed in Jesus. But that's not what brings judgment. What brings judgment is sin. What brings judgment is my rejection of the way that God intends for my life to go and my rebellion and my refusal to submit to his will. That's what brings judgment. And so the author said maybe a better question would be guilty. 
Now we have at least a different kind of way to think about it. One that we're still not very comfortable with because we don't like the idea of guilt. We don't like the idea that we can't just do what we want to do, how we want to do it, because we've been taught so deeply, and we're going to deal with this more next week, but we've been taught so much that you should just be able to follow the desire and the longing of your heart, and that no one should tell you what's true or right. And because we have that deeply within us, we're challenged around the idea of condemnation. Peter does identify another type of problem with these false teachers in this passage. In, in verse 3, he said, It's in their greed these teachers will exploit you with stories they have made up. In their greed. And because the reality is these false teachers have got to teach and speak in such a way that their hearers will be intrigued and tantalized and will have their ears tickled and you know, will feel pretty good about themselves because those people are the means by which the false teacher gets paid. And if you run around offending people, not many people are willing to pay you to offend them. Now, comedians have gotten away with it over the years, you know, some, some select folks, but you at least went in with the expectation that you were probably going to be a target of some sort of joke, right? But these teachers had to make sure that everybody felt pretty good about themselves. And so whatever the, the story they were spinning was spun in such a way that the hearers would feel great and would open the wallet. Now, we've got some versions of this in our culture. And actually, one of the growing heresies across the world is something known as the prosperity gospel. And it's a, it's a problem. Because here's what one prominent preacher of prosperity gospel, I'm not even going to say who it is. This is a quote from one of his messages. It's God's will for you to live in prosperity instead of poverty. It's God's will for you to pay your bills and not be in debt. It's God's will for you to live in health and not in sickness all the days of your life. Now, man, doesn't that sound awesome? I want that. Give me more of that. That's the part that is so tantalizing. Because it sounds so good and we have lots of assumptions about who God is and how she, he should act based on our assumptions and expectations. And so this aligns with those. Of course, God should use all of his power to give me prosperity and give me health and give me you know, all the good. There should be none, none of the trial, none of the problems, none of the struggle. And the way this often works is, you know, if you believe enough, if you surrender enough to God, that surrender often looks like financial surrender, by the way, for the sake of the false teacher. This particular false teacher believes that it's God's will for him to be rich. And he is unashamed about it. In living in a in 2008, when I first came across his, an interview where he said that, he was living in a 17,000 square foot mansion valued at $11 million in 2008. I mean, I guess it's good if you can get it. 
right? He says, I don't really, he was asked about this, about his wealth. And he said, I don't really think about it much. I'm not looking to be wealthy. God's made me that way. Now, I want to acknowledge this person also gives a whole lot of money away and helps a lot of people. But there's something problematic about the message that has woven its way into very much the American church because, man, we love that. Give me, give me the money. Show me the money. But I think it may even be more show me the health. Show me the stability. Show me my family that's just living, thriving in every possible way. Don't, don't show me any of the pain. Don't show me any of the struggle. Don't show me any of the hardship. None of that. Give me the good stuff. Now, I understand the impulse. I long for it. And it is why Jesus came, because things are broken, and there is pain, and there is struggle, and there is trial, and there is hardship. And he will come again someday, and he will bring healing to all of it. That's his promise. But we live between now and then. And if the reason that there's still trials, because we haven't surrendered enough, we haven't believed enough, it sounds a whole lot like it's really more about my hope is in me to do it enough than it is in Jesus. But man, is that just, a, that message just grabs at us. But it's not in the Bible. There's a couple of places where you can grab onto out of context and you can claim it. And you can say, see, here it is. This is God's will for you. But what it disregards is if it was God's will for everything to be good and right and rosy, why did Jesus have to suffer? The greatest good came out of the greatest suffering ever known to man. The greatest hope for prosperity and wholeness and health and reconciliation and forgiveness came out of the greatest suffering of the, of the God who became flesh in a human in Jesus Christ and then surrendered himself so that he could su substitute himself in our place so that we could have hope. Hope for today and hope for eternity. See, that's the truth. Peter also identifies that these are folks who despise authority. Man, does that not resonate in America today? I mean, don't tell me. Who are you to tell me? You know, that's your truth. That's not my truth. Because we don't want to be told. I mean, honestly, who do you submit to? Not, not who you're oppressed by. Like, we often hear the word submission and we think oppression. It's not somebody that's forcing you, right, into a place of subservience and, and, and lower. Submission is a choice. It's an act of the will to put yourself below someone else. Who do you submit to? Because it's a problem if we don't have submission to anyone. Billy Graham, you may have heard of him. I'm going to take that as a yes. Billy Graham submitted to the elder board of a tiny Baptist church in the mountains of North Carolina for his entirety of his ministry. Submitted. Not just 
you know, had these guys around him that said yes all the time, but submitted himself. Because he recognized the need for submission is actually tied to our relationship with God. Our need for submission, we can practice it in little ways here and now, but ultimately our submission is to the Lord and to his authority in our lives. And Peter is so concerned about false teaching that he spends the brunt of this letter actually trying to address it because he says it will lead to destruction. Destruction. Because what we believe affects how we live, doesn't it? Doesn't it? I mean, what you believe affects every moment of your day. And if you believe that seatbelts actually save lives, you're going to wear a seatbelt. If you don't, you probably won't wear a seatbelt. Right? It affects how we live. And so Peter's concerned what we believe will affect how we live. And how we live can lead to destruction if we've bought into the false teaching that has cropped up in the world. And it's a slippery slope to destruction because the truth matters. The truth matters so much. And in our day, it's actually, we have access to more information than at any point ever in the history of the world. And yet it is harder and harder to figure out what's true, isn't it? But the truth matters, doesn't it? Because what you're listening to and believing is true is affecting how you're voting. What you're reading and believing is true is affecting the actions that you take around your health, around your family, around uh, all sorts of things. If, if you found out, right, that, that I, was, I can't remember, I, was, I heard in a podcast recently there was this, there was uh, not COVID, before COVID, there was a, a vaccine that, that had been approved and it was out after trials and it was being disseminated through the population and there started to be deaths related to it. And what they found out was that the data had actually been falsified in the trials. And actually a lot of trial data is manipulated. And, and so if you found out that you'd been basing, you know, staking your life on the validity of the truth of the data, and then you found out the data was false, it'd be crushing, wouldn't it? It'd be terrifying, wouldn't it? See, how we're gonna live our lives depends deeply on what is actually true, and part of, I believe, what's driving the, the anxiety and the depression and the hopelessness and the despair of really throughout our population is that we have no longer a confidence that there is truth that we can stand on. That means everything's shaky, everything's wobbly, and if everything's shaking all at once, how can we have a place of safety, of security, of confidence? What we believe matters. And the truth that we find over and over again in the scriptures is a person. It's not just a set of ideas. It's not just a set of doctrines. It's not dogma to hold on to. It's not things that will give us a sense of security because, hey, I believe the right things and everybody else is wrong. It's a person, and the person is Jesus. He says, I am the truth. 
I am the truth. And drawing near to him is how we will continue to know and discern what is right and what is wrong, what is false and what is true. And so Peter had told us we have the Holy Spirit. We have the Bible. These are gifts. These are tools to lead us. But ultimately, the Holy Spirit is going to lead us into the truth, the truth that is Jesus Christ. And so the invitation, my friends, is for us to continue to seek humbly. Because in the midst of all this, trying to figure out what's true, it's so easy to get discouraged and just fed up and just be like, whatever. And we can have an apathy but it's really a lazy apathy. Or we, we can also find ourselves in a place where it drives us to continue to ask and to seek and to pursue God and to humbly put ourselves before him in prayer, to gather with others who are sincere in their seeking, to speak up boldly when you hear things that don't seem to align with what has been revealed to be true, to challenge one another, to encourage one another. Challenge me when you don't think you've heard what's true. I need it. I am confident I have not spoken from this place every word that has been true all the time. And frankly, it's terrifying. And yet, I will not continue to grow, you will not continue to grow unless we continue to discern together with boldness and courage and faith and trust. And so, my friends, in our humility... Let us continue to seek him and experience what we'll talk about next week, and it's the freedom of living in the light of what is true. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is a heavy message, and it feels heavy on my heart and on my mind and on us. Where there are so many things that are swirling in our day, so many teachings. And it is hard, Lord, to know what is true. We need you. We need you to lead us, to guide us, to teach us, to show us your way, to bring us close to yourself, that our confidence won't be in what we know or what we believe or that we're right or we're on the right side, but that our confidence would be rooted more and more fully in who you are and what you've done for us, the person who is the truth and who is the way, who is the life. Lord, may we be a community that holds fast to what is true but continues in humility to seek you and to seek you in understanding. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.